All right, today we're going to continue with the series that we've been on for, I guess, about three weeks late uh, so far. It's called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. Eight, carefully, these words are chosen carefully, so think them through. Essential means necessary. Elements is the basic foundational principles of the biblical rather than other versions, such as the Americanized modern gospel or whatever. Christian uh, and gospel meaning the good news. So um, we did a couple weeks, uh, two or three weeks of introduction. And then we uh, last week we did element number one, the attributes of God or the essential attributes of God. I was a little surprised if you noticed I labeled it parts A and B last week, thinking it would take me two weeks to get through the outline, but I was able to hurry through and, and uh, do a pretty good job on one take of uh, element one. Now, I'm actually not even going to attempt to do element two in one week, but I am going to try to do it in two to three weeks. Okay, so uh, what we're going to start on today is um, the nature of man or the attributes of man, and uh, I've subtitled it An Introduction to the Biblical Anatomy of Psychology. Uh, carefully chosen words. We want to be biblical. Anatomy means uh, uh, breaking things down into their parts and so forth. Anatomy is unlike a lot, a lot of people because of our materialistic world or naturalistic religion that's in the university state think anatomy is only to deal with uh, the study of the body, but we could talk about the anatomy of a sermon or uh, the anatomy of a wedding. So uh, when we're, you know, when we're talking about the we want to talk about man's constituent parts today, the anatomy of a biblical view of man's psychology. And in, in essence, we're asking this question, is mankind, human beings, uh, man and woman, are we dichotomous? Uh, I see that I have a uh, typo because the uh, spell checker, I was thinking I spelled dichotomous wrong, but it was changing my word. Are we trichotomist or monistic was meant to be the question. Are we dichotomous, trichotomous, or monistic? When I was going through the bell spell checker, I thought it was just telling me that I had misspelled dichotomous, but I guess it was telling me that, that trichotomous was not a word it recognized. So I changed it there. So in your, uh, at the top, change it to, is mankind dichotomous, trichotomous, or monistic? Now, what we're asking here is uh, uh, essentially... Uh, this. Does man have an unseen side? Are we both a physiological being uh, and a, uh, do we have an unseen part or a spiritual being? Uh, is, is Genesis 2-7 correct? That God formed man out of the dust of the earth, which is, of course, biblical speak, metaphor speak for, for the material parts, and breathed into him, the Hebrew word for breath, ruah, or spirit, into him the spirit of life, and man became a living soul or a self-conscious being. So uh, we're going to ask a question in a minute. Is that verse talking about three parts of man, or is it talking about uh, uh, two parts of man? Now, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, so here, here we go. There... Uh, there are people that hold uh, a dichotomous view of man, a trichotomous view of man, 
and a monistic view of man. That is one nature. Now, among the monistic views of men, there are people who have a somewhat Christian or biblical monistic view of men, and then there's the modern view uh, that comes out of our modern secular humanistic religion called materialism or nationalism. It's a philosophical uh, frame of reference. So uh, the dichotomous view um, is actually held by Wayne Grudem. You'll see there in point 2A3, and you can read about it in his uh, Systematic Theology, Part 3, Chapter 23, in his sections A and B. This, the dichotomous view is just this. It's saying that man does have a physical, uh, a part you can see. They normally, now in our five senses, the most um, pervasive one is sight. So when you're talking about the physical, you say, can it be seen? Of course, that means also, can it be heard, tasted, touched, felt? So uh, man has, ha in the dichotomous view, man has a seen part that is uh, sometimes called our outer man. And uh, Paul actually uses, uh, talks that, that with that kind of language in 1 Corinthians 15 about our outer man, and also in Romans 8, our outer man is decaying, and he compares uh, the body to a grain of wheat, which has a chaff on the outside and the kernel on the inside, and that uh, someday we're going to sow this grain of wheat into the ground, and the chaff is going to break away, and and the grain of wheat is going to be resurrected into a new type of body, which is more in keeping with uh, what will be our uh, spiritual natures that are not um, subject to sin, but it will be a physical body. It won't be a physical body with all, all quite the same limitations as we have now, and it'll be quite a different kind of physical body, but it will be a physical body. So, again, the dichotomous view is basically saying that men have an outer man. Um and that the outer man consists of, in the dichotomous view, of one inseparable and interchangeable part. And that is you have a spirit and a soul, and they, uh, when the Bible is talking about your spirit, it means your spirit and your soul. And when it's talking about your soul, it means your spirit and your soul, because they are one and the same uh, in the dichotomous view. Now, um, with that view, uh, uh, part of the, the argument for that view is that your, which is also part of the argument, ironically, for the monistic view, is your spirit and your soul cannot exist outside your body. Ecclesiastes talks about doing certain things of fearing God and so forth before the silver cord is broken. There seems to be something in the mystery of life uh, that ties your spirit to your soul. Those who have gotten into the occult, as well as many many people in the Bible, test Paul, uh, for for instance, John that in the New Testament, others in the Old Testament, testify, Isaiah and Isaiah 6, testify of being caught up in their spirits to the throne of God, uh, where they uh, were in the presence of God in heaven, not really like we think of it, a physical dimension that's up there somewhere, but a different dimension, if you will, third dimension or whatever, uh, fifth dimension, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, but uh, a different realm and where they were uh, able 
to spiritually see and experience and hear the sounds of heaven, the voice of God, the presence of the angels, the great cloud of witnesses, and so forth. Uh, many Christians have testified to that experience. Many occultists have testified not to having that kind of experience with heaven, but to, to having their spirit travel both in space and time. I know, personally know occultic people who believe they went back to the Salem witch trails and watched them and who walked on the moon and different things. And honestly, although all demonic things are full of lies, I don't think their spirit that that these that, that the the experience of spiritually spiritually leaving your body and the whole uh, demonic realm of of um, the new age where there's spirit guides and so forth. I believe that all exists. So the the essence between the dichotomous view and the trichotomous view is simply that dichotomous view says because when you die. Your spirit and soul leave your body. Um, actually, most people who are into what I was just talking about, the spiritual experiences in the, uh, from, from both kingdoms tend to be trichotomous. But anyway, um, you're, they're saying that when your spirit and your soul leave your, this body, uh, you're, you know, they have to go together. Uh, my first Christian speech... Uh, was at my little brother's funeral on, let's see, August 20th, Carla's birthday, or no, August, probably August 21st, uh, the day after Carla's birthday, 1974. And um, the first thing I noticed when I walked into the room and saw my little brother who had died two days ago and, and saw him in the casket, uh, and you, many of us have experienced this, of course, is he's not really there anymore. Eat, no matter how much they do the makeup thing and, and people always, the, the reason people, you have to re read the verse negative, the reason people always go, oh, he looks so natural. He looks just like himself. It's because they don't. <laughs> and we're trying to comfort ourselves with saying like, there's something of this person who's still there, but the essence of the person is gone, right? And uh, so... Um, and many times we're very aware that he's gone or she is gone uh, into uh, either the realm of heaven or hell, and they're they're gone from this terrestrial realm. Now, the trichotomous view, which happens to be my view, is that man has a physical seen outer man and an invisible seen inner man. So, so far, the trichotomous and dichotomous are in agreement, but that the spirit and soul are separately or distinctly discernible and functionally diverse, although I don't believe they're separable. Now, unfortunately, uh, most of the time, the trichotomous viewpoint gets uh, caricaturized as uh, that they that they would be separable, and um, I believe that like when Paul got caught up into heaven and so forth, if the Lord that his soul still was on earth, and John and so forth, but had the Lord wanted to take them 
at that point, their soul and their spirit would have left together to be with the Lord. But the Lord was giving them a vision in the spirit. So I think they can function differently, but, and they're discernible. You can tell as you grow in the Lord, it, I believe it's highly desirable to, like it says, Jesus perceived in his spirit that the Pharisees thought thus and thus. It's highly desirable to be able to discern what is going on in your spirit versus what is going on in your soul. And they are different realms, uh, although both of them will die, will leave your, you when you die to go be with the Lord. Now, one, again, you can read about that viewpoint in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, Part 3, Chapter 23, Section C. Now, I meant to cut and paste. I, I, sometimes I get move on to the next thing, and I, I meant to cut and paste a bunch of the scriptures that Wayne Grudem uses in that section, although you can look them up there yourself, and I will quote a couple of them right now. And here's what, one thing that I like about Wayne Grudem, there's kind of three reasons that he's so popular and deservedly so. Number one is he's very complete. It's, it, you cover, cover all the main subjects that you should cover in a systematic theology. But number two, he, you might say he's very accessible. Unlike his, uh, his teacher, Louis Burkhoff, who we used to use his book in the 70s and the 80s, because Grudem hadn't been written yet. Grudem was still a young guy. He's, Grudem's about my age, I think. I think under 60 probably, or, or thereabouts. Um, so um, Burkhoff tended to use the historically uh, the historical definitions for theological terms, which tended to be weighted heavily towards those who want to be professional theologians, you might say, or full-time theologians, or at least give themselves to a lot of study of theology. Part of Wayne Grudem's genius is he kind of dumbs down, as you will, the vocabulary while retaining the more technical terms in the footnotes at which which I like that they're at the bottom of the page I hate books so many books that the footnotes are at the back because I always read the footnotes and that means you have to flip back and forth it's way hard in Kindle um, but um, he that he will give you the technical terms and I would encourage you to to learn the technical terms if you can because that goes along with first uh, Corinthians 2 when Paul says we do speak wisdom among those who are mature but a wisdom not of this age because if the, the the wisdom of this age was able to attain wisdom they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory but we speak a hidden wisdom God's hidden wisdom which is revealed in Christ and we combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words in order to fellowship with God you and 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 to be able to understand intellectually and articulate your spiritual experience with God or to be able to understand intellectually and discern whether your spiritual experience with God is biblical and valid uh, it helps to have spiritual vocabulary. So you should be growing in spiritual vocabulary all the time. And uh, so if you don't know what a preterist is or a partial preterist, learn what a preterist is or a partial preterist. Off this subject, so I won't even define them. Just throw that out there for you. Um, I dare say you can't understand the vision of Grace Christian Fellowship if you don't know what a partial preterist is. <laughs> uh, you, then you won't know where we're going. So uh, 
I, it, and so in terms of this, uh, this idea of man having three parts, um, here's, here's kind of how it works. Um, uh, well, let's throw out a couple of verses for it, by the way. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, I'm just going to have to do a couple of them out of memory, set, it talks about how may your spirit be preserved uh, or may your may your soul be, may you be preserved spirit soul and body and he lists all three as, as seeming to indicate that uh, one could be preserved and not the other in some sense. Uh, what I this the second verse he lists which is the, the main verse I want to stress is Hebrews four twelve that says the word of God is living and active. That's a slap in the face to whole modern Christianity right there. If you really meditate on that, because to, today the word of God is dead and abstract, uh, and and it's not very powerful. But it's but the word of God is living and active. It creates new life. It heals. It delivers. It saves. It changes hearts and minds. It grants repentance. It brings the fullness of conviction. It, it uh, is accompanied by signs and wonders. If you took out the references to signs and wonders in the book of Acts, you wouldn't have much left. Constantly they are proclaiming the word. They are not just doing lifestyle evangelism. They're doing proclamation evangelism, as we covered in the introduction of this series, why that's important. And the Lord works with them and confirms his word by signs and wonders in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 5, on and on. All the way through Acts five, you know, eight, uh, nine, etc., <laughs> fourteen, fifteen, just just everywhere. So um, the Word of God is living, Hebrews four twelve, and active, and sharper than any two edged sword, and able to divide between soul and spirit. That's important between joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you know the Bible says who among man knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that's in him, but only when the spirit of God is in your spirit and the spirit of God is applying the truths of God's word to your spirit. Can you actually judge yourself rightly before you come to Christ? You actually don't know yourself at all. You have a spin doctor version of yourself and you have coping mechanisms, and you have ways. I have, I have uh, seen some people who do, you know, anytime you do any kind of sin, there is no such thing as uh, like the, the doctrine of modern times, and especially in drugs and in Robin Hood theology, if we, it's okay because we're robbing from the rich and, and all this thing. And, so, and, the, and the doctrine is, well, nobody's getting hurt. <laughs> All sins are against God. They're damaging to you, and other people get hurt. Not least of all is because of the diminishment of you and the people who need you. No, there, there is no innocent, no victim sins. And so when people who are, have sin habits of various kinds, say, I always hear people go, they're a really nice person. But that's because the Bible says that everyone's uh, motives 
and attitudes and everyone's behaviors right in their own sight till the Lord judged the motives. When I became a Christian, I read about Zacchaeus, and I had to spend a whole summer earning enough money to pay back the people I stole from because I was a big-time shoplifter. And I also used to steal direct, just steal direct cash out of one business all the time. And, you know, I thought I was a pretty nice guy. I really did. I, was, I thought I was a basically good person. Uh, I don't think that little struggling business that, that uh, sold eggs on an honor system and was a small, teeny little small family business that I used to steal all the cash out of their cash box like twice a week, uh, I, I don't think no one got hurt. Remind me to tell you the story of what uh, he happened to say sometime when, uh, when I paid him back all the money I'd stolen from him. He was quite amazed. Uh, never thought, he never thought someone would show up and, and say, I've been stealing from you for years, and I've calculated this is how much money I stole from you, and here it is. He about... Uh, well, he about fell off his chair and, and made some unusual comments. So um, the word of God is living and active and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But for our message today, I want to focus in on it's able to divide between soul and spirit. See, Jesus accepted the limitations of his humanity. So when the Syrophoenician woman came to him, he discerned with his natural eyes that she was a Canaanite that she was not a daughter of Abraham biologically. So when she said, Lord, my daughter's cruelly demonized, he assumed she wasn't one of the children of Israel. And when she said, uh, Lord, even the, the dogs get to eat the, the crumbs out of the master's table, he realized God, his father, by the Holy Spirit, had given her faith. He realized it only because of natural discernment of her words and his knowledge that it's those who are faith that are the true sons and daughters of God. It was not a Holy Spirit revelation. It was his soul figuring it out, like we have to do. And he granted her, he said, woman, great is your faith. In other words, you're a child of Abraham. You get the children's inheritance. You get to have the demons cast out of your daughter because you can't get demons cast out if you're not a child of God, right? So uh, on the other hand, when, when the Pharisees were thinking evil of him, it clearly says that he perceived in his spirit. That is, by the Holy Spirit, the same way you have to. The Holy Spirit can give you knowledge, uh, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, discernment of spirit. You can know exactly what to say to someone. And it may blow your natural mind, but if you have enough of a relationship to the Holy Spirit, you may... Uh, tell them amazing things like Jesus did with the woman at the well when he said, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not actually your husband. And, and she goes, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And, uh, and again, I always point out, thank, Jesus, thank you, God, that Jesus is not sarcastic like I am because I would have said, gee, woman, you have a keen sense for the obvious. <laughs> but he did not do that. He moved on to much more gracious and redemptive things. But... Uh, and I would encourage you to follow uh, Jesus' example there, not what I would be tempted to say. Uh, but um, so you really can discern between soul and spirit. Now, 
Uh, you can look up other verses on it. I do want to say, uh, I started to say why I like Grudem, the accessibility and the comprehensiveness. The third reason is this. He normally presents the arguments that he doesn't agree with in a pretty fair way. And in fact, in this particular chapter, he is a dichotomist. And I was actually, from other, from, from a number of reasons, I was considering the dichotomist viewpoint because I have this way of doing theology where I try to get to a position that's not where I'm at now. Like, I've tried to become Roman Catholic, but I can't quite get there. <laughs> but at least I've tried to look at it and, and understand it on its own terms and so forth. And, you know, I haven't been able to get there. But um, I've, I have tried, uh, I tried to get to be a dichotomist. But when I read, read Wayne Grudem's arguments for the trichotomist view, which he was just presenting what trichotomists believe, he totally convinced me. <laughs> and uh, I've never wavered in being a trichotomist since then. Now, I will say it does help to be baptized in the Spirit, to be a regular worshiper where you're regularly filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit, where you're walking uh, outside of the sorrows and signs and and the lust and whatever things of the flesh, and you're starting to flow in God's love, joy, and peace. Uh, the fruits of the Spirit are active and flowing in your life because of your intimacy with God spiritually. Uh, but for those people, um, it is quite, uh, quite um, normal to be able to sense things in the Holy Spirit all the time. I can honestly tell you that um, I experienced the most words of knowledge and words of wisdom and discernment of spirits in two very distinct times of my life. One is when I'm casting demons out. The other was for, uh, I guess, uh, 20 years when I was making sales to earn money to send my kids to private schools and to pay the mortgage on that dump of a property we have, and so forth. So, uh, uh, because uh, if God hadn't given me discernment of people's motives and, and so forth, I would, and if he hadn't specifically given me words of wisdom and words of knowledge what to say, I could have never closed sales. So to think that the Holy Spirit's not going to give you wisdom in your nursing job or in your chemical lab or uh, at the bank uh, when you're selling financing uh, stuff, the more godly you become and the more you think through your vocation from biblical perspectives and the more you walk clean and intimate and free with the Lord, God wants to give you strong success. First of all, because 10% of it goes to extend his kingdom. Not to mention, God doesn't just define his kingdom as the 10% that goes directly to the church part of his kingdom, but you're, you're to extend his kingdom into your children from the, by the type of schools they go to, and on and on and on. All right, so I got to speed up my pace here. Um, now, in the tripartite view... Uh, man's spirit has three components. One is your intuition. This is what the Bible is talking about in Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 when it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Romans 3.10, uh, 
Paul quotes the fool has said in his heart, there is no God there. And he says, there is none who seeks for God. He's quoting that Psalm. And uh, there's none who does good. Romans 1, he talks about how men suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. A, the, the most noticeable part of the sin nature of man was that after Adam and Eve sinned, they fled from the presence of the Lord instead of seeking the presence of the Lord. In almost all modern psychology and sociology uh, is, is, is man's attempts to spin God out of the picture so that we are not accountable. It's not neutral in any way because man's reasoning is fallen and his presuppositions are antichrist. Therefore, all of his science is skewed, and his reason is skewed. That's a thing, by the way, called presuppositional apologetics. If you want an introduction to that, I would recommend you start with a, a book called The Word of Flux by Rusash Rushduni. I would feel like my life has been cheated had I not read that book when I was, um, I think, toward the end of college or just before grad school or whatever. But uh, man is not reasoning from some morally neutral point of view. You're either for me or you're against me, Jesus says. And when you're against him and when you're running from him, all your reasonings and all your science and, and all your interpretation of the data is askew. And seeking to eliminate God from your perceptions. But every person has an intuitive knowledge that God exists. That's why there are no atheists in foxholes. That's why some of the world's greatest atheists have cried out for repentance on their deathbeds. Well documented, by the way. So um, that's the first part of your spirit, is your intuitive knowledge that God exists and that he's transcendent, and that he's awesome. You, man does not know God specifically. In theolo theological terms, they call that general revelation versus specific revelation. But all men are running from a general revelation that there is a God so that they don't have to encounter the specific revelation of God, which is necessary for unto salvation. Okay? Secondly, People, you, I, you, uh, your spirit has a capacity to intermingle with other spiritual beings. It has a tabernacle function. So your spirit can be filled with God's spirit. That is, in fact, what happens. We think there are two uh, spiritual experiences that start the Christian life. One is the new birth that should be followed with conversion if the gospel is preached correctly. We're having a lot of people who are getting touched to some degree of life or being drawn or quickened that aren't really being converted because of the nature of the crazy religious confusion we're living in in one of the darkest times, in my opinion, of church history right now. Um, but nevertheless, that's supposed to be what happens at conversion. The new birth is supposed to lead to conversion. Now, secondly... God wants to baptize you in the Spirit initially, granting you a prayer language to speak in tongues, but he wants to fill you and fill you and fill you and fill you and fill you with the Holy Spirit regularly and often, uh, daily and hourly. I love that one song we've sung a few times, I need thee every hour. 
We sing that sometimes, right? John Gray sings that. So John Gray sings that at sometimes at the little prayer meetings. Great song. I, I, you know, we need them every hour, every minute. So um, that's the second aspect of your spirit. It has the ability to... Now, that's why part of the dualistic nature of contemporary evangelicalism is so dangerous because there's this idea that spiritual things are good and material things are bad, and so it's bad to drink beer. When the real issue is, are you drinking beer in the spirit of God under the lordship of Christ and drinking the amount he wants you to drink? <laughs> That's the real issue. Uh, is food good or bad? Well, uh, I doubt that uh, the amount of french fries I ate at Five Guys the other night was good. But, uh, but food in itself is good uh, as long as we're in the spirit and under the lordship of Jesus Christ controlled by the Holy Spirit, right? Many physical things. Uh, I wouldn't, I, you know, as a as a pastor, I am constantly checking with married couples. If they tell me we're having problems in our marriage, I'll say, how's their sex life? <laughs> um, because without, and is, there, is there just passion or is there also intimacy and mutual service and mutual respect and, and love and affirmation and covenant and all that? Or is it just sex? So um, physical things can be quite good. And guess what? Many spiritual things are quite evil. And so when you become a cessationist and a spirit denier, man is innately spiritual. He's made in the image of God. You'll have spiritual experiences somewhere. So you'll get into horror uh, movies or into drugs or secret alcohol like sins or drug sins that you'd never tell the church or, you know, the, the dual life. You know, uh, the majority of Southern Baptist pastors, the majority of Southern Baptist pastors, and I'm not down on any denomination, but this would, is alarming. In almost every denomination in Christianity, to be a Freemason uh, disqualifies you from membership in that church because it's a, it's a contrary religion to Christ. It's an antichrist religion. The majority of Southern Baptist pastors are Freemasons, which means that ultimately they're not Christians, <clears throat> and they're pastoring God's church in the name of Christ. Wow. Um, I hope to God we never elect the devil as an elder of this church, <laughs> because that's really what being that what you're doing there. So. Um, Again, your spirit has capacity for spiritual experience. Thirdly, your spirit has a conscience. Boy, we're really going to have to kick it into gear. Here's, here's what I want to tell you about your conscience. Your conscience was meant to reflect the nature of God and the law of God. However, because of sin, everyone's conscience has been, has been calloused and, and seared. And part of what redemption is, is God wants to, and so your conscience doesn't bother you about things that it should bother you. That's why you can... Uh, you know, curse somebody and flip them the finger and, and, and a half hour later talk about what a jerk he is and what a basically good person you are. <laughs> because your conscience is defiled and it's no longer acting as a good guide to you. So part of redemption is God wants to restore your conscience to reflect him and his law. 
Second aspect of man's soul is, is, or man's tripart being is the soul. That's your mind or your intellect. Which, by the way, that's why Jesus uh, expands when Moses uh, saying, Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus adds the word mind to it when he quotes it. Because if you don't love God intellectually, if you're not a book reader and a Bible reader and so forth, then you don't love God. Now, I'm all for, like, if you just met a girl and you've gone out on one date uh, and you're not radically in love just yet, that's okay. But don't be dating two or three years and not be in love because <laughs> that's a waste. Uh, so if you're going to be a follower of God, get in love with God, and that includes being a lover of God's word. They're inseparable. If you're not a lover of studying, and uh, you're, then you're not a lover of God. Your emotions have to do with your affections. We love all kinds of things, some of which are neutral as long as we keep them under the lordship of Christ. Like, I like the NBA basketball tournament. A lot. <laughs> but because, I usually watch the selection show. But because of spiritual obligations and responsibilities, I haven't filled out a bracket in years, nor have I actually known who's really the good teams or not, because I don't have enough time to follow it. Of course, I haven't had cable in seven years. But, um, but if I can, I try to watch some games. But not, not if it's going to mean missing Friday Night Fellowship. So, again, your affections, God wants to sanctify them unto maturity, you know, like it's one thing to love video games when you're eight. It's quite a different thing to love them when you're 18. That represents maybe some developmental problems that God wants to address. Unless you love making money by writing them, <laughs> which is what you're supposed to be doing by the time you're 18, being responsible to save the world. which includes uh, making a lot of money for God's kingdom. If you can give 50% instead of 10% because you do so well, go for it. All right. Um, and then, of course, man has uh, five senses, and our five senses tell us, communicate with us uh, sensory data about um, uh, the physical realm. All right. So basically, your, your, your senses and your spirit both communicate to your soul, and your soul, your self-consciousness, thinks about it, feels about it, and makes decisions. Your, I meant to say your soul also includes your will. That's the third part. I think I skipped that. And your will includes your volition. And I developed these points a lot more than I thought I would, partly because I unfortunately had, did an all-nighter, and I'm never succinct when I'm tired. But... Um, this monism thing, let me just explain that uh, there are some Christians who say the seen and unseen is inseparable because, it, uh, because if you, uh, when you die, uh, you're, they're separated. Uh, not that many Christians are, are monistic, uh, but they're basically saying you're a whole person. And in some ways, there's a grain of truth in that. In some ways, you are a whole person and you're inseparable. And if your spirit and soul get severed from your body completely when your silver cord is broken, you're, that means you, you just want to be with Jesus. <laughs> and um, now, 
But increasingly, I, I guess I want to talk about this, and then next week I'll start with uh, point three. There are some essential gospel takeaways from this whole view of man being spiritual. So I, I think I'm just going to finish with C2 there, and we'll stop there. Naturalist or materialistic monism? Naturalism, by that I mean uh, contrary to theism. A Christian is a theist. We believe there's one God transcendent in all the things we described in the attributes of God last Sunday. However, um, a naturalist is the, is the religion of America. It's the religion of evolution. It's the religion mostly of the universities, although Christians are actually starting to recapture their universities in some positive ways, gradually. Uh, there's some positive signs of life there. But um, in, in a naturalist worldview, there is only material. And so even what traditionally, uh, that's a departure from even humanistic psychology because Freud, the first anti-Christian humanistic psychology who started the whole blame-shifting game of modern psychology, he still postulated that men have an unseen part, that they have a conscience and... Um, and that they have uh, in this, these unseen urges, the id, ego, and so forth. Uh, naturalists increasingly deny that. Now, there's implications to that. They reject the unseen, so everything is explained in biological, chemical, and physiological terms. The implications are that more and more psychology exists in brain studies. In brain studies to study chemical firings in the brain, electrical firings in the brain, neurological firings. And they do not see the mind as being something separate from the brain, as is Western man historically because of our biblical faith. Your, your brain is all there is. Now, um, that therefore, emotions result from chemical firings. And therefore, emotional problems are caused by chemical imbalances. And increasingly, therefore, psychiatry is the study of chemical imbalances to slap psychotropic drugs on the problem. Now, that paradigm is helped along greatly by the fact that there's billions of dollars of profit in it for everybody all along the line. But um, th that that worldview doesn't see man as having an unseen part or in a, as having religious affections or, or ability to make choices. Man is just a man, and so it, it, it disempowers you because you're just a product of all these chemical problems you have. So now you're, and, and people accept these definitions that you're, uh, you know, hyper or bipolar or, or whatever your ADHD and so forth, and they accept the definition of it that you're, that's, it's not something that you could work with as a dad and help uh, your son or daughter come out of ADHD by spending more time with them and, and helping them learn how to go through the developmental stage of, of focusing, but you, uh, you give them a drug because it can't be helped, and you dope them up. Now, I think this has terrible consequences and I think it's a substituting, uh, I'm ashamed to say, almost all modern people have used an electronic babysitter. You know, set the kid in front of the TV or what, right? Or video games, whatever. Uh, and then there's the Christian versions. We did, we use the Christian versions. They're called like Veggie Tales and McGee and Me and, and uh, stuff like that. 
And we used some of those when we were raising our kids. Carla loved Sesame Street. And, uh, <laughs> and I took her to see Big Bird and the whole bit. But uh, the problem is we're physically, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And as the whole Bible's view of incarnation brings out, Yes, there are chemical things going on when you have emotional problems and so forth. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? The, let me tell you, if you fellowship bitterness and unforgiveness, you will have chemical physiological side effects. If you uh, fellowship excuse making and avoid the consequences of your action all the time, you will have develop weakness of soul and weakness of character and weakness of body so that you cannot take as much uh, because you've avoided hardships over and over and over and over until you can't take any hardships so that if you had to run three miles, it would kill you or whatever. Or if you had to stay in a uh, Holiday Inn, you might die. <laughs> or what's a cheap one? Like, uh, whatever. So, uh, I'm going to stop there and just, but we'll look at some of the implications of this. You need to understand the intense interplay between spirit, soul, and body if you're going to become fruitful in sharing the gospel. And we will talk about that uh, next Sunday. <laughs>